0: Father, we love you. Thank you for Brady being on the podcast today. I just pray that this conversation provides a lot of enlightenment and clarity for Christians and unbelievers alike who are trying to navigate social media, church world, and all of that stuff. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Cool. So, Brady, what got you interested in social media in the first place? So I've been following you for a little bit and obviously you're the guru on it. What what's kind of what created that passion for you?
1: So I went to Bible college to be a youth pastor. I got uh passionate for the church and for Jesus in high school. And so I wanted to be like my youth pastor who was so, so influential for me. So I go to Bible college and I start an internship. And the spot that they have available is the media director at a new church plant. And I had, you know, uh, fiddled around with video editing using, you know, a cracked version of Sony Vegas. Hopefully the, you know, statute of limitations is up on that admission. Uh, from high school, you know, working with green screens in a communications class I had. And so I, I really did like that. And so I was thrilled to be this, you know, media director, it's like this formal position with a formal title. It felt so grown up. So they gave me a camera and a MacBook. It was the first time I ever had a computer that was, you know, a creative computer. And what I do is I basically just start picking up skills by looking at what other churches are doing and kind of like replicating that. And so I remember the first project I ever did was this vision film for our new church plant and uh city church, Judah Smith's church was doing something. Uh, and they had this crazy, uh, this crazy vision film where they did this video effect. Um, it's called tilt shift photography, where it makes everything look like miniatures. And they were simulating it. There's an actual tilt shift lens that you can get, but you can also make it uh, like Through the computer simulating it and so i basically like copied that and i did the whole vision film for hours like that going around my city filming everything and i basically just went and did that for every discipline in the creative field so that's video but of course social was a big part of that and as i'm learning it i'm falling more in love with it and then i'm looking around at my own school to my peers and i'm like man they're going to get their jobs and it might not even be in the field that they studied but they're going to be put in charge of these same things just like i was. So that was the impetus behind the company that I started, Pro Church Tools, ten years ago, and basically just teaching everything that I was learning because I figured if I can pick this stuff up, so can anyone. I, I'm just you know learning as I go, no no formal expertise. So that was the the origin story for the podcast, for the YouTube channel, for the company, uh, for all the social platforms. You know, fast forward ten years, we're a team of you know twenty full time uh, creatives building software and doing a lot more than just you know creating free content, but At the core of everything we do is still that you know YouTube videos, podcasts, and uh, and teaching as we learn.
0: What's I think what's pretty obvious is that you've always kind of been a guy who's ahead of the curve a little bit. Definitely when it comes to ministers, right, going to Bible college, coming out, doing tech, media, things like that. But I feel like generally speaking, I'm a pastor in a church, and I can say this from my anecdotal experience that ministers typically are behind the eight ball when it comes to media, marketing, social media, especially technology, all that stuff. Why do you feel like that is that maybe pastors, ministers alike can be a little slow to adapt to like the new trends, the new things, all that stuff?
1: Well, I mean, pastors have a lot of things on their plate. And most pastors in the US anyway, are roughly 60 years old. That's the average age of a Protestant lead pastor. So if you think about that individual and their career, they have been leading a church for, you know, twice as long as I've been alive, not quite, I guess I'm a little older now, Uh, without ever having to deal with digital media. And then kind of like, in the twilight of their vocational career, serving as a lead pastor of a church, this massive communication happens, we call it the biggest communication shift in 500 years. And suddenly, you have people our age being like, hey, you need to do this thing. And they're like, well, I made it this far, and I never did it. And so they're resistant to that change, and then there's also just human nature. Human nature is resistant to change by default. That which is unfamiliar, we deem as potentially dangerous, and so it's also a little humbling. Like what you're saying that I should be doing something that I'm not currently. Well, then I'd have to admit that maybe I'm not doing things as well as I could or should be. Well, that that's sometimes difficult to admit, and so there's a mix of like what is unique about our organization and our industry. You know, the church world. Um, and then there's also just human nature that's resistant to change. And, you know, I can't really even take any credit. You said, I, know, I, time. So I just look at what other organizations are doing. And so long as I bring them to the world of the church within five to 10 years, you know, it's like, Oh, <laughs> the voice in the wilderness. <laughs> like, well, okay, I mean, okay, I, I can't take that credit, you know? Like,
0: yeah, absolutely. So you obviously are pretty active on social media and things like that. And, you know, your, your niche, I think has changed a little bit. I wouldn't say change. I think morphed. And kind of slid with the times a little bit. But you used to be all over Season 167, social media, social media, social media, social media game plans, this, this, and that. And you still put out great content when it comes to a lot of those things. But I've, I've seen your content morph into something a little bit more broad, a little bit more holistic, if you will. And I don't know if you would agree that sentiment. But I still see you as a guy who really is a professional when it, when it comes to social media. And a guy who has great insights when it comes to that. So as you look at social media, it's only grown. It's only, and it's only going to grow. I think as you look at social media, could you point out one, the biggest upside to social media, how it can build a church, how it can help you as a Christian build your personal platform, number one, and also what issues could it cause as well? What drawbacks does it have for the individual and the church?
1: Yeah, certainly social media is a tremendous tool for opportunity personally, professionally, Uh, Because any message that you have can reach dramatically more people online than it ever could in person. You know, Nicholas and I would not be on this call together 20 years ago. It just wouldn't have happened. And my desire to help churches in communications could never have happened because regionally where I live, there aren't enough people that care. Globally, I can dedicate my career to this and we can have, you know, 20 families that also work under the company that are all being able to, you know, feed the The kids at home and and you know purchase homes and and dedicate their lives to this, but that's only by virtue of the internet. And so, you know, two things there: you can amplify what you're already doing, but you can also connect and build communities with people that you know physical proximity isn't available. And and that's not even a new thing. You know, there's scriptural precedent for that. Read any single one of Paul's epistles; it's always like, "Hey guys, I'm not with you right now, but let's talk." Here are the, some things that we got to do. Here are some spiritual practices that. We need to get back to. And so it's also, you could argue, historically true to our faith. Physical proximity has not been always required for the faith to endure and for it to to grow. Um, Of course, I say that not in any way trying to diminish in person ministry. I feel like every time I'm speaking to a new audience, it's important to make the caveat that just because I see the value in online doesn't mean that I don't see the value offline. And what I always say is that online can do. Many things that offline cannot, but the true is also uh, in the inverse. And what's great about the two is that when they're working in tandem, each leaning into their own strengths, not trying to be one another, that's when things are awesome. I mean, pre-pandemic, most churches were not taking advantage of online platforms. During the pandemic, we had to do too much on online platforms. And my hope coming out of it has always been like, okay, we can see the value of what online can do. It was carrying too much of the burden during the pandemic, but it also wasn't being utilized enough pre-pandemic. Hopefully we come out of it and we can see the value of both. And when they do work together, I think that's when our churches have the ability to do the most and fulfill our missions with the most effectiveness, but also like efficiency because the reality is you work in a church, like resources are scarce. They are limited. And that's another amazing thing about the internet is that it removes a lot of the prerequisites um, that traditional media had, you know, a really simple example of that is that you know, if you wanted to advertise on the radio or television billboards, there was a big, big cost barrier for that. And if we're thinking the average church is, you know, 100, 150, a lot of that was just not even on the table as a possibility. No, we cannot spend five thousand dollars on a billboard. Well, you know, social provides us the ability to create accounts, reach people for free. If we want to spend a little bit of money, maybe a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks. A 10th or fewer than traditional media, we can see similar results. And so that's another amazing thing. Okay, downsides. Sure. Um, Social media and the algorithms that dictate it are engineered to get you addicted. And they are engineered to get you addicted through the things that are most addicting, which are outrage, lust, like things that are not specifically good for us at all. And so a mature person on social media is someone who's actively telling the algorithms what they want to see because here's here's what you need to understand about the algorithms. Yes. By default, they're going to index towards outrage, let's say, because there's nothing that will keep our attention more than seeing someone say something that just gets us riled up. Yeah. But the algorithms also want you to spend time on their platforms. And so if you're actively, giving them inputs and say, I don't like this. I don't want this. They will respect what you ask.
0: Yeah. So on your your feed, on your feed, as you're looking at it as as someone who I know is, you know, eating your own cooking here, like, what does that look like? Someone's like, just heard you. Okay. Control the algorithm. I get that. I hear you. I don't want, you know, girls saying stuff on my page anymore. I understand that's lustful. I understand. I don't need to be seeing all these things. If you were looking at somebody's feed, what literally would you be doing?
1: Well, we're moving into a world of what I call discovery algorithms. And so we're kind of in this in-between period where every major platform is embracing discovery algorithms, which is a departure from social graph algorithms. I'll answer the question. We just need a brief kind of explainer on that. Social graph algorithms are based around your connections, friends and family. You add a friend, you see what they post. Discovery algorithms are not at all based around who you follow. They're based around your viewing habits, your personal interests. And so TikTok pioneered this. It is now being embraced by every platform. You know, Zuckerberg said, hey, by the end of 2023, more than double of the stuff you see on your Facebook and Instagram feeds is going to be from people you don't follow. So that's a discovery algorithm that's motivating that statement. So knowing that, you have to tell the algorithm uh, actively. So if I see a video, I'm like, hold down on TikTok, not interested. And and this is also seasonal. Like, this isn't to me like, oh, I never want to see these videos. I never want... Like, sometimes I'm just like, you know what? I'm in a season where I don't need to see all these gym videos because like I'm doing sleep training. Yeah, I can't yeah. get enough recovery. And then I come on this podcast with Nicholas. I've never that's met right. this man. He's clearly jacked out of his mind. <laughs> I'm insecure on the other end. This is one, not what I need on a Friday. Right? So that's maybe a seasonal thing where I'm telling you, yeah. you know what? Right now I'm not interested. That's not to say I'm never interested in that content, but right now I'm not. And then there are other things that I'm like, again, okay, I never want to see this not interested. Once you've done that once or twice, they're, the algorithms are very good at respecting what you want because if they don't, you're not going to spend time on the platform or what you're actively telling them is in contrast to what you are passively telling them. And this is the other side of it. You need to be mindful of how you're lingering on videos or replaying videos because they're taking note of that just as much as your active things of saying not interested. And you say you're not interested, bro, but like you replayed the last one we sent you three times. So I don't really know what you're telling us. We're going to keep... Right. And so, you know, discovery algorithms are great. They're like basically a mirror of, uh, like your life. Hey, like, man. That's you, you that, want accountability. You want to really like show off someone for Hey, bring it up. Let's go through, let's swipe 10 videos and see what, you know, you're all about.
0: That's a great point because I mean, a great way to check how mature you are in your faith or how good you're doing is to check. The ultimate feet.
1: accountability group, you know, it used to be like, Hey, have you been doing something you shouldn't have? Did you just lie to me? Like, look, you can pass that test. Open it up. You cannot pass this test,
0: man. That's. I mean, I think that's monumental, though. That really is, because I don't think anybody. Another benefit would think of social. Way. Yeah, seriously, it's a mirror onto who you are and the things that you appreciate, whether it be, you know, more God honoring things or dishonoring things, as you know, it can be. The feed makes it obvious. So. Uh, as, you're, as someone who's listening to this, so I, I get it. Like the feed, it's a mirror, and I don't want girls popping up on my feed. I don't want this popping up on my feed or sensationalism or whatever you feel like is a draw away from God. Cool. But Brady, you know, I'm. A, someone might say, you know, I'm on fire for God. I, I really want to use this as a, as a bonus, not just as something that I don't fall into sin using. They want to leverage it, right? They want to use it as a platform for the glory of God. If you're looking at somebody, and you yourself, you use this amazingly. How would you tell someone like, hey, you want to spread your faith through media? Here's how you can do that. What advice would you give to somebody?
1: Sure. We always talk about identifying the intersections between faith and culture and using those as the ideal entry point for content creation. And this is lifted directly from Jesus. I was doing some study this morning. There's this book that I frequently reference. I think it's from 1994. So it's an older book. Um, It's called The Method and Message of Jesus's Teachings by an author called Robert Stein, and it's a little bit of a scholarly book. Um, There's this one reference that I frequently come back to, which is in all the synoptic gospels, more than any other method of communication, Jesus uses parabolic teaching, which is basically, hey, we're we're, going to talk about the kingdom of God, but I'm going to show it to you in a way that is accessible to every single person, the educated, the uneducated, the rich, and the poor. So he talks about agriculture, baking, uh, finances, labor, wine, sheep, and he uses those, Jesus does, as entry points to then talk about the kingdom of God, which is very abstract, it was frequently confused during Jesus's life and the people that he spoke to and, and the crowds that he ran in. And that is a perfect example, Christ's example, of finding the intersections between faith and culture. And so if you are an individual, hey, you know, what? I want to use these platforms for good, uh, but I want to reach a wide audience. Well, with discovery algorithms, the good news is that you have the possibility um, for the last, you know, 10, 15 years, aside from new platforms where you had kind of a brief time where a new platform would come about and like you could get in on the ground floor and really like build a platform there and then maybe cross promote to other platforms to build. Um, it's been like, Hey, if you have the connections, great. If you don't, ugh, it's it's difficult. Maybe you can spend some money through advertising, but with discovery algorithms, The idea is, is that you can find the people that are going to resonate with your content, but you have to hook them within the first couple of seconds. And so I think that the wisdom of scripture is applicable to all people, but there are a lot of things that are not applicable as the entry point. And so, you know, if Jesus even talking to the crowds that were following him, the multitudes like went straight into the abstractions of the kingdom of God, I mean, He confused his own disciples. And even then he was still using parables. And so I think identifying the entry points. So we talk about categories for this to make it really practical. Um, Purpose, hope, destiny, finance, parenting, relationships. These are things where the wisdom of scripture is timeless and applicable to all people in the past, in the future, in the present. Um, But they're also accessible because they're not like super insidery and Christian. And and so sometimes people have this difficulty where they're like, okay, I I don't wanna be too uh, worldly, let's say in quotes, but I also can't be like, if I'm too like insidery, there is actually a perfect balance between the two and it's finding the intersections between faith and culture.
0: Yeah, I think that's so good too and very wise because Jesus, even when he spoke and all throughout the Bible, he didn't always speak in ethereal matters. Of course, there's spiritual implications to everything he is saying and everything is tethered to the kingdom of God, the bigger picture, all of those things. But in many instances, he spoke directly to divorce. He spoke directly to generosity. He spoke directly to these things. And I think that's the thing that a lot of Christians on social media struggle with, and even myself, you know, I'm guilty as this, is that sometimes we're a little too ethereal in hopes that we want to stay spiritual, but sometimes spirituality is practical. And you can speak directly to relationships, dating, generosity, money, whatever that looks like, because we have the truth, the Bible, the thing, the, the base of all of those things. And I, I think as Christians, we should not be afraid to speak specifically to what we know we struggle with and what we would also assume other people are struggling with as well. So I'd love to shift gears, Brady, and go a more professional route with you because you're creative at Nature. You work with creatives, all that stuff. And I was actually asking a guy Hey guys, before jumping back into the episode, I want to give a huge shout out to this show's sponsor, Making Him Known Apparel Company. Making Him Known is run by my guy, Aaron. And Aaron does an awesome job of making apparel that draws others to Jesus. They have hoodies, tees, totes, stickers, and much more stuff coming soon, all at makinghimknown.com, which will be linked in the show notes. So if you want to support this podcast, go support Making Him Known and go get you some awesome apparel. who I work with he's is a creative on our team he's a beast. I'm more on the pastoral side of things and he does, you know, a ton of media and I was like, "Hey man, you know, I'm sitting down with Brady. What would you ask him?" And he mentioned this. He feels like in churches sometimes, especially a mega church the one that we work in, is that sometimes creativity is not facilitated properly. We either don't prioritize it high enough or you know, we don't maybe we literally don't put the budget to it, whatever that looks like. What advice would you give to like, leadership, pastors, business owners as well, who, see, like, who maybe don't see media as what it could be and maybe don't put the priority high enough for it?
1: Well, I mean, even to interrogate the question from your colleague, it's like, what is the motivation behind creativity needing to be elevated? Because it should only be elevated so far as it serves the mission of the church, And that really is both the answer and the question. It's very common for senior leaders to not see the value in any number of recommendations or requests or advice that the congregation or their staff gives them. And again, to kind of put ourselves in the in the shoes of the senior leader, people are always coming to them saying, "Hey, we should do more of this." And and when when they say "we," they mean you. And the senior (laughs) leader is like, "Okay, like that's great, but like this is the mission of our organization. So how does it serve that?" So what I always tell you know creatives really anyone that's trying to like influence change within their church is that first you need to clearly understand internalize and then articulate the mission of your church to your senior leader and explain how your proposal is going to directly help accomplish and fulfill that mission. Otherwise it's really just a pet project for you. And if, and that's great, but like, let's not do that under the guise of the church as this, uh, you know, amazing thing. No, know that that's, that's a, you thing go do it on your own. And and so that's where we have to start. Now, if creativity is, you know, not being really elevated or, or valued, and that is detracting from the mission, or at least you can make a case for like, if we did more of this, the mission could be better fulfilled in this way, then great, let's start there. And I would recommend a video that we have called how to see change in your church if you're not in charge. A senior leader taught me a uh, Three-step process. Like, look, well, if you want to influence change, I'm the senior leader. Come to me and do it this way. And it's uh, incredibly practical. Um, the first step is articulating the mission. There's stuff that comes afterwards. We can talk about it now if you want. I'd love um, to. But I also please, could we go? Okay, into great. It?
0: Yeah,
1: sure, absolutely. So, yeah, first step, you go to them in like meeting number one. You articulate the mission. You you demonstrate to them that you're like, I know the like burden that you carry and all the things on your plate. What I need you to first understand is like. The most important thing in this church is X, as you have articulated it. I understand that. I get it. And my proposal and project is about seeing that fulfilled. And then the second thing is you need to basically have like a pilot project version of what you want that you can do on your own that requires nothing from them. Because, sure, it's great to articulate the mission if you follow that up with, and I need $5,000, or I need this many volunteers, or I need this piece of new gear, it's like, okay, great. I'm glad you articulated the mission. Let's revisit the budget, you know, next year and, and we'll see. So, what you need to do uh, is basically be like, okay, here's, here's the mission, and here's my idea. You don't need to do anything. I don't need any time of yours. I don't need any budget. And I'm not even going to like, I'm going to figure this out myself. Let me just do a couple tests and demonstrate, at least try to demonstrate that my idea is actually uh, going to work. So, you know, if this was uh, the, the vision video that I, I mentioned back in the day, like maybe what I do is if that church doesn't give me a uh, Canon T3i to use, is that maybe I borrow one from my friend who had it. Or nowadays it's much easier. I'm just using my phone to do something. Because 10 years ago, like I, need, I still needed an $800 camera at the time to, to maybe shoot something like that. Well, nowadays the barriers don't truly exist. So you basically provide proof of concept without any type of investment required from the senior leader or the church. And you're not going to be able to see like the the full realized version of what you want to be done. But you need to demonstrate that your idea has merit, essentially. And then the third step is, well, okay, now you're asking, okay, look, I've articulated the mission. I've shown how this project helps fulfill it. Now, like, we do need resources to see this done. So what you do is you kind of create three different proposals. There is, like, the extremely cheap version that uh, sacrifices a time and really does, like, hamstring your ability to see the project fulfilled. But, like, technically you can do it. There's the middle version. And the middle version is, like, modestly more expensive in price, in time, in volunteers than the really cheap version. But it's dramatically Going to give you a better chance and and like more resources to fulfill it because we see that a lot. Like say, hey, like an eight hundred dollar camera is this, a twelve hundred dollar one. It's a huge jump. It's it's only a thirty percent jump in price, but it's like a three x jump in capability. So that's kind of what you want from the middle option. And then there's the expensive option. This is like, hey, dream scenario. We could do this, this, and this. And usually it's another jump, but it's in the inverse. It's like a it's a three x jump, but you only get like in price, but only like thirty percent more in capability. And basically, what you're trying to demonstrate. in an honest way, is to say the middle option is the way for us. Because look, I'm not suggesting we spend all of this and go all in. Yeah, I mean, if you said yes, I wouldn't be upset. But I don't think we need that. We can get 80% of the way there with the middle option. It is the middle option. I think if we go with the cheap option, we may as well just like wait until we can go with the... If we go with the lowest option, we may as well just wait because it's going to be you know such a such a limited... Uh, set of what we can do if it's just not worth it. So that's kind of like the three steps roughly.
0: Yeah, I think that's really good too. And so as a creative, and I think we have the creatives' attention now. Do you think a person's cre- creatives have uh, a secular skill set, popularly speaking, I understand everything can be devoted to God and for the kingdom, I get that. But for the most part, they have a skill set they can transition over to any business whatsoever, the ability to market, to create content, whatever that looks like. Whereas a pastor maybe has, if you're on the Bible you know it's pretty uh, that's pretty directive towards the church so as a creative do you think though that even though they have a technical skill set a secular skill set that it matters if they're a spiritually mature Christian as they create me, have you found that that impacts what you do at all and what encouragement would you would you give in that regard
1: yeah it's an interesting question I mean my first impulse and thought was like well I mean preachers have a lot of a, a technical understanding as well. I mean, writing and, you know, live public speaking are, you know, like would predate, let's yeah, say uh, a point. website designer or a graphic designer. And sure, they might be um, in needing to uh, you know, do some expository and have a degree in theology. But well, I have a degree in theology too. Like, it's, you know, it's a lot of this stuff comes down to, are you a practitioner or not? That's That's one thought. I mean, to answer your question, I think that spiritual immaturity to me would show up more in like the personal side than the proficiency side. I don't think that the spiritual immaturity would affect proficiency. It might affect kind of like long-term upside because I could see it manifesting in like a person's arrogance or unwillingness to kind of keep honing their craft. And we see this with athletes a lot. Like there's the type of athlete that's born with so much talent and skill that they don't really feel the need to work hard and like get in the gym and improve to themselves. Like, yes, I was born with this, but the best of the best are born with it. And then they like work and scrape for every last iota of ability as well. And the best of the best have both. And then, you know, there's also like working with immature people is is challenging because deadlines don't get met. They maybe don't work well with others. Uh, Maybe they're not especially teachable. Uh, Maybe they are insecure. And that often can then manifest in um, like pseudo confidence and especially like in men. And I, I, you know, I'm a man, I work mostly with men. So I I see this, like it it manifests in like this hyper masculinity, which you can see underneath is just like a a little boy who doesn't really believe what he's saying and doesn't know if he's as, you know, amazing as he's trying to put on. And that can be really difficult to manage as well, because it's like this, this barrier that you're trying to break through um, but the amount of just resistance that requires uh, is challenging. Of so I, w- I would probably see more on the personal side than the proficiency side. Yeah, of
0: course. And so I wanted to get to this question before we get off for sure is let's say you have two people. Number one, you have a Christian who says social media is for the devil. I'm not going to I'm not getting on that. I'm not downloading Instagram. You know, you heathens can have that. What would you say to that person who says social media is all bad. There's no good in that. And the second indiv- individual on the other side of the spectrum, I'm addicted to social media. I can't stay off social media. I love it so much. What would you say to the person who says, no good, won't get it, won't ever have it, no one ever should, and the person who says, I use this way too much?
1: Well, I mean, I think for the person that's really upset about it, I would ask questions trying to figure out what is the value and what is the, like the, the code um, that that's inspired by my guess is that there's an anecdote behind it, and I would try to challenge the fact that, like, hey, like, we can't base our values on anecdotes because that is not a, a good way to build our worldview because it allows you to build any worldview that you want. We can pick and choose any anecdote from any side of thing to you know build the narrative that we want. Um, that's why we have scripture. That's why we have something to actually work from as the foundation and then build up an ethic from there. And so if you're going to make a personal choice, like, you know what, I I don't find social media edifying and I'm going to stay off it. Great. To then prescribe that for others. I I mean, there's just no, uh, from my vantage point, scriptural basis for making that claim, unless you're applying that very consistently. And then you would probably be the type that is abstaining from many, many things. And if that is the standard you're holding, great. But most likely it's an inconsistent standard. So then it's not coming from a place of uh, an ethic. There's no principle that's informing that it's just you picking and choosing which is again that's your worldview that's you in the center which we can't come from that position from the person that is like hey i like i, I can't get off this like i mean i, I don't know i mean i I've, that's rare to see that type of self-awareness so it's it's much more common to come across the person that demonizes social than the one that says listen i have a problem um but i, I imagine like any other type of like Compulsive behavior that we rely on too much, Um, practicing like abstinence and fasting for um, any type of period. Um, You know, you could do um, a Sabbath day, which we probably all should be doing, um, and you say, like, there's one day a week where I don't touch it at all, and then try to observe how that feels and and why it feels that way and and what fruit comes from that. Uh, And then, you know, you could also just do that test. Like, okay, when, when I do this, what what is the fruit that comes from that because we know that the scripture talks about hey you can look at the outcome from the behaviors and use that to judge the behaviors okay great so if the fruit is bad and you've acknowledged that and you probably have because you've already said i want to get off of this a little bit more then we have to put in some in some boundaries and boundaries are great boundaries are healthy and they help us uh, you know produce better fruit and change our behaviors to do so
0: oh 100% and so brady as we're nearing the end here from theology, studying in college through starting your own business. You've been through a lot, seen a lot, experienced a lot. What do you think is the greatest lesson you've learned through your whole journey, through media, church ministry, all of that stuff?
1: You know, I had a pretty big crisis of faith in my 20s because my faith in my in my late teens and early 20s was, was primarily intellectual. And I had talk to myself and my faith, and I'd put it in this really neat box that was kind of like unassailable on the intellectual side. And then, you know, as an under 20 something without a fully developed prefrontal cortex, shockingly, as I got older, that neat box, I was challenging myself. And 25 year old Braid was a better uh, arguer and uh, debater than 22 year old Braid. And so then I had this crisis of faith because my my faith was founded on something that was assailable. And the thing that kept my faith going was, you know, the, the Christ-centered ethic that was, you know, dying to yourself is the most uh, powerful way to live. You know, if you truly want to make a difference and see life, it comes through putting your own interests to death. And once that had to be practiced in some really dramatic and like humiliating ways, and it kind of like proved itself to be true. It it's a great ethic in, in, as a hypothetical, like what happens when you have to really see that played out. And it was the most life-giving and transformative thing. And so then it mattered a lot less to me, like if I could intellectually prove every single thing, it was like, no, like this, this ethic inspired by Jesus is the most important thing. And, you know, I believe in Jesus because of that. And it's the thing as a leader, if you're ever going to be a leader, like it's, it's, it's lonely at the top because you have to serve people all the time. And it just requires you to continually like put your own interests to bed. You know, as an example of that this week, so we had this thing happen at our company where we had set a goal to release this new product. And we set the goal in January and the product was meant to launch in December. It was this really big project, like with a 12 month timeline. And I was not the person that had any say in if the project was completed. It's just not my department, but I lead the company. So we missed the deadline. And so I have to then explain to all of these churches that kind of made their plans for the end of year based on like this product being released that, hey, we we missed it and I'm telling you now in December, because I was so stubborn that I I thought we could get there. And even though it had nothing to do with me and I had, it's no fault of my own. It is my fault because I run the company. And so I have to take ownership of that and full ownership. And I then have to like get in front of everyone and say, Hey, this is on me. I made a commitment to you. I messed up and you're being affected by it. And that's not fair. That comes from the ethic of like, Hey, your own, you're the leader. So put your own interests and like desire to defend yourself and desire to make excuses. If only they knew. Well, mm-hmm. that doesn't honor or model Jesus in any way. Yeah. You know, the entire cross story is the ultimate example of that. Oh, and, and so that's probably the biggest lesson in a nutshell.
0: No, for sure. I mean, and it's, you're right, though. Just like Jesus, die to self. You know, I understand that these aren't all my mistakes, these aren't all the issues, but for what it's worth, I take credit. I serve. First, and i love that so much so brady we appreciate you being on today man and we're so grateful for the wisdom that you dropped and i know a lot of people are going to be have you know a lot of encouragement and be given a lot of value from this episode so appreciate you
1: cool man i'm gonna go do some more lateral raises now i gotta get up so (laughs) all
0: right brady see you man